It's springtime, planting time, farming time, and it makes me think of, or rather provides a good introduction to the lesson this morning, and one of the ideas of that lesson, and that is one of the ads, one of my favorite ads I see in the back of magazines, and that's the ad where you see that commercial for, you know, that super fertilizer stuff, that growth enhancement product. They promise miracle growth, you know, grow 20-pound tomatoes, 5,000-pound squash. You know, you have a squash as big as a tractor, and there's a guy smiling, and I, you know, I just sprinkled some of this stuff on, and bingo, you know, I have these huge tomatoes the size of, the size of pumpkins. You know, it doesn't exactly say it in those ads, you know, when you look at those ads, it doesn't exactly say it, but the implied suggestion is that without any work, you can triple your productivity using this product. And that's really the catch of the ad. You, know, you don't have to work, just use the product and the product will do it for you. And of course, we are easily subject to this kind of scheme because all of us want a hit. We all want a hit. We all want a uh, kind of a silver bullet solution that will save us time and effort, but will produce results. You know, we don't want to, we don't want too much effort, but we want big results. I mean, that's human. It's human nature. I think the best one that I like is, that's most recent is for that miracle cream. Right, girls? That miracle cream? Oh yeah, you just put the miracle cream on your legs. Poof! There goes the fat. No more fat. Just apply the cream and that's it. With no reference to diet or exercise. Just apply the cream. Isn't that great? Well, this miracle grow mindset sometimes affects us in the church. It's okay when it's out there, but it tends to creep into our church mentality. Because like gardeners and people who want to lose weight quickly, in the church we want results. We want dynamic results, and so we also look for some kind of miracle grow or miracle cream for the church. There was just something we could rub onto the church and make it grow without too much effort. Maybe some miraculous one-step program that'll just draw huge crowds, you know, and the church building will be full. Wouldn't that be great? Or maybe change our worship around so that it'll wow everybody. Every week, everybody will be excited, excited. Or maybe convert a, you know, trouble with the budget? Convert a millionaire or two. I was asking Lewis, anybody you converted this weekend a millionaire? I don't, I, all the time that I've been preaching, I haven't converted a lot of millionaires. You know, you might get a 10 pound tomato once in a while, it happens. Or you might feel a little lighter by applying the miracle cream, but probably because your wallet's a little bit lighter. But when it comes to church growth, there is no miracle method to church growth. You know, the age of miracles ended with the apostles. And so did the Pentecost method of church growth through miracles. At the beginning, the church really did take off like a rocket. I mean, 3,000, you know, like a rocket, because there were miracles. They did these tremendous miracles, and it kind of, we needed a tremendous booster, you know, to get the thing off the ground. But today, the age of miracles has ended. Today, the church still grows but it doesn't grow through miracles. It grows in a natural way, if you wish. 
It grows by maintaining five different principles, five different, I call them pillars, that support church growth. And those are the things I want to share with you this morning. You know, we, we've talked about the bombing and we've talked about those things and they're still kind of fresh in our minds, but like the world is moving on from that scene, we also have to move on. And we need to be about the work of the Lord in this community here. And that's why I chose this morning to move on, to begin discussing things that concern our congregation and some of the needs that we have. And one of the needs that we have, of course, is to define and help us understand the principles that will create growth in our congregations. Five principles very quickly this morning. Number one, first thing we need for growth is biblical preaching and teaching. Biblical preaching and teaching. You know, in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, Jesus said to his apostles that they were to go out and preach the gospel to all creation. And then teach these disciples to obey everything that he had taught. I'll tell you something, when all is said and done, what people want most and need most is to hear the word of God taught and explained. That's what people want to hear. They want to hear the word of God taught and explained. Jesus told the apostles to preach the gospel and to teach the disciples all of the things that he had taught them and encouraged them to obey this thing. That is why they devoted themselves to this priority, first of all. In Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we find out that the apostles were devoting themselves to what? To preaching and teaching God's word. You know, it's hearing the word of God and growing in our understanding of the word that gives us insight and knowledge. It's hearing the word and understanding it that strengthens our faith and our hope. In the end, you know, what is it that we want from our religious experience? What we want is our faith to be strong. What we want is our hope to be sure so that we can face the world on Monday morning. And how does that happen? That happens through the hearing of the pure word of God. That's what we need. We need to hear God's word. It's God's word going into our hearts and our minds that produces joy and peace. Sometimes we need counseling and sometimes we need to talk things through and sometimes we need to go for a long walk, you know, to find ourselves, to find a balance in ourselves. But the bottom line is that what we really need to produce the joy and the peace in our hearts is God's word needs to be alive there. And the way that we get that is through preaching and through teaching. That's what people want. That's what people need from their religious experience. And only biblical preaching can produce that thing. So do we want church growth? Then there has to be good Bible teaching and preaching. And I don't just mean from the pulpit, I mean in the classrooms and when we get together uh, for fellowship, you know. I mean, it's okay to have a pizza and to have drinks and so on and so forth, but there also has to be spiritual food at those gatherings as well so that the meeting can feed not only the stomach but can also feed the soul. That's what we need. Secondly, if the church is to grow, we need personal evangelism. And the key word there is personal evangelism. In Matthew chapter 28, 19, again, Jesus said to his disciples, they had to go to the whole world 
and preach the gospel. And when the apostles heard this, they heard it as a group, right? But they had to carry it out as individuals. They didn't go everywhere, you know, 12 at a time, 12 at a time, 12 at a time. I mean, they heard the word as a group, but then they dispersed and they had to carry out that command in their own particular way. The church does not grow unless people are added to the church as we're added this weekend through baptism, individuals identifying themselves with us. That's how the church grows. But people are not added to the church unless there's preaching. And people are not baptized into the church unless there's teaching. And there's no preaching and teaching unless somebody is there doing it. Lewis had to go into the home and actually explain the gospel to these people in order for there to be conversion. And people don't hear the gospel unless each individual in the congregation is committed to bringing that gospel to them. You know, a lot of people say, yeah, but boy, I'm kind of nervous about doing that because they only see personal evangelism as a one-dimensional thing. Do you know, if you look at the Bible, you can find at least six different methods of personal evangelism. And I want to share those with you very quickly. Six different ways of sharing your faith biblically. One way is the confrontational method. The confrontational method. That's an example of that is Peter on the day of Pentecost. He stands up in front of the crowd and he confronts them with the gospel. The news of Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection and their sinfulness. And he urges them in a public, in a confrontational manner to repent and to be baptized. That's straight ahead preaching, straight ahead public speaking. That's the way that I've chosen to share my faith, using my skills, my abilities. Confrontational style of evangelism, preaching here or at a gospel meeting or at a youth rally or in some way on television. Confrontational evangelism is the style that I've chosen. But it's not the only style. Another style is the intellectual evangelistic method. A good example of that is Paul in the book of Acts, chapter 17. Paul was in Athens and he was reasoning. He was reasoning and he was talking to the intellectuals of that age and trying to convince them of the gospel. We have modern intellectuals, people who write books and produce tracts and uh, commentaries and so on and so forth. People who disseminate information about Christianity using all forms of electronic and print media. The intellectual method of convincing people of the gospel. Christian teachers and so on and so forth. That's the intellectual way of spreading the gospel. Another way is the testimonial method. We don't use that very much in the church, but it's a very biblical, in the church today, but it was a very biblical method, very uh, uh, productive method. The uh, demoniac is a wonderful example of testimonial personal evangelism. In Luke chapter 8, verse 39, Jesus heals this demoniac. He's possessed of many demons and he wants to follow Jesus after he is healed. And Jesus says, no, go back to the cities where you come from and tell them what, you know, what the Lord has done for you. Go and testify, he says to this man. And this man goes back to Decapolis, the 10 city area. And he tells people what Jesus did. Did he know about doctrine? I don't think so. Was he trained as a speaker? I don't think so. Was he an intellectual? Uh-uh. 
He only had one sermon. He only had one story. And that was before I was out of my mind. <laughs> I was nuts. I was out of control. Does that sound like some of us? I was nuts, out of control, out of my mind. And then Jesus came into my life and I regained control. I regained my mind. I regained my sanity. Jesus did this for me. That was his only story, like a mantra over and over again. Look what Jesus, look at my life. I was over here. I was ruined. And now look at me now. Look at me. And if you continue reading in the book of Luke, you'll find, yes, in the book of Luke, you'll find that after Jesus returned to that area, many, many, many people came to hear his preaching and were converted. Why? Because of the testimony of the, demon, uh, the demoniac who went and told what Jesus had done for him in his life. That's the testimonial method of personal evangelism. Number four, the interpersonal method. Matthew is a good example of interpersonal evangelism. Here's Matthew, the outcast of society, a tax collector. So what does Jesus do with him? Jesus goes to his house for lunch. And they have lunch. They talk. Jesus associates with him. Seems to me I've heard of that method before. I think we call it friendship evangelism in the modern, the 20th century. Jesus associated with this man that no one wanted to associate with. And because of that, brought him not only to belief, but made a disciple and an apostle out of him. You know, today, what do we have? We have sports and different kinds of activities where we associate with people who are not members of the church. For what purpose? Just to play racquetball? Just to play golf? Go hunting? Or go shopping? No. No, that's a secondary reason. The primary reason is to share our faith with them to let them come close to someone who is a believer. That's interpersonal evangelism. Number five, invitational evangelism. The Samaritan woman practiced invitational evangelism. Jesus spoke to her and she was impressed by him. She believed. And what did she do? Did she go out and preach? Write a book? No, she just went to her neighbors and said, come and see a man who has told me about my whole life. She invited people to come and hear Jesus. We do the same thing today when we say to our neighbors, would you like to come to worship? Uh, uh, someone moves in next door. We bring them a plate of cookies. We welcome them to the community. A little while later we say, look, you folks have a church home. Would you like to come with us to Sunday school? You know, That's invitational evangelism. VBS coming up. Lewis was talking about the brown sheet. What he was talking about is... Some of us have an opportunity to practice invitational evangelism. We fill out the sheet with names of people and children, and we call those people. He may have given the impression that we're going to call. No, no, no. You're going to call. <laughs> you make the list, and you say, okay, and, I, and you call up all those people, and you write down who's coming and who's not, and then you turn that sheet into the office, and then we'll find out who's coming. That's invitational evangelism. And then finally, evangelism through service. A lot of that took place in the last couple of weeks because of the bombing. People were serving other people. Money and food and counseling and all kinds of services were given to people who were in need in the name of Jesus Christ. Evangelism. That lady who was here visiting with us uh, last week, uh, she will go back. She's not a member of our congregation. She will go back and they will ask her of her experience. And what do you think she's going to say about the Choctaw congregation? 
about the Christians that meet. Do you think she'll say bad things about us? I don't think she will. I think she'll say good things about us. Good things that will honor God and honor Christ. And maybe, hopefully, she will come back to hear the teaching, to hear the word. But certainly, she is a marvelous advertising for Christ and the people who live here and who worship here. Service evangelism. Not everybody can do door knocking. You know, people say, oh, I want to do evangelism means I got to go and knock doors. You know, personally, I don't like knocking doors either. Not everybody can do door knocking. Not everybody can get up in front of 200 people and deliver a half hour message. Not everybody can do that. But I think each of us can find a way that is comfortable, that uses our own special talents and circumstances to evangelize. Now, here's my point in case you forgot what the point was. In order for the church to grow, every single person sitting in this auditorium today who is a member of the church needs to practice personal evangelism. You're never too old. You're never too young. You're never too experienced. You're never too inexperienced. You're never too mature in Christ. Sometimes people think, well, I've been a Christian 30 years. Man, that evangelism stuff, that's for the young people. (laughs) No, that's for everyone. We never outgrow our responsibility to evangelize. What I'm saying to us this morning is, pick a way here that's suitable for you and practice it. Because if you don't, the church will never grow. Thirdly, third pillar for church growth is regular worship. Regular, and the key word there is not just worship, it's regular worship. Now I say regular because in order for worship to have an effect on growth, it needs to be regular. Understand the relationship. In order for worship to have an effect on growth, worship has to be regular. Now, some people think that for worship to affect growth, it needs to be emotionally stimulating. Wrong. Like every time I come to worship, if I could just come to worship and every time be emotionally stimulated, you know, get really high, get get off, you know, then it would mean the church would grow because other people would want to get emotionally stimulated when we come to worship. Well, this kind of thinking leads to spiritual burnout because the purpose of worship is to honor God, not excite the worshiper. And we have forgotten that idea. You see, the purpose of entertainment is to excite the spectator. You go to a ball game, that's entertainment. You go to a movie, that's entertainment. You go to a concert, that's entertainment. Okay, you go to see these things to be excited. If I pay six and a half bucks to go to the movie, 13 bucks to go with my wife, plus popcorn and the whole nine yards, you know that if I'm spending twenty dollars for two hours of entertainment, I want to cry or I want to get mad or I want to get excited or I want to feel good or I want to be taken on a roller coaster ride. You know, I want something for my money because it's entertainment. It's diversion. Okay. The purpose of entertainment is to titillate and to excite all, of course, as Christians within proper boundaries. There are some things that are out of bounds for Christians. But in normal times, we want something to make us feel something when we're entertained. What we don't understand is that the purpose of worship is not to excite the worshiper. Not to make the worshiper feel something. The purpose of worship is to honor God. It goes from here up to here. Okay, so if you don't walk out of here saying, well, I didn't feel the earth move. Well, so what? 
You have to walk out of here feeling that what you have done has actually honored the Lord. That if you were able to ask the Lord and if he were able to say it to well, he is able to, but if he chose to say it to us in, a, in an audible fashion, the Lord would say to us, I am satisfied. That was good. I was honored. I was praised in a proper biblical fashion. That's the purpose of worship. Now, if we want worship to affect growth, okay, the relationship there is regular attendance. Because you see, regular attendance at worship is what stimulates, is what stimulates growth for particular reasons. For example, faithful attendance is pleasing to God. And if we please God, he'll bless us with growth. Faithful attendance produces spiritual growth in the Christian, and uh, that affects the overall growth of the church. The more you come, the more you hear the word, the more you hear the word, the more you grow, the more you grow, the more the whole body grows. That's the way that works. Faithful attendance produces enthusiasm. You want enthusiasm? Faithful attendance produces enthusiasm because people are encouraged by seeing the faithfulness of other people. I dare say the the most kind of encouraging moment this morning was when Lewis announced that three people had been baptized. People went, all right, amen. Yeah, the body grew. Or that a family had chosen to place their spiritual destiny with our family. And people went, yes, that's good, we're growing. All right. I'll tell you something, if at the second worship, we're at the second worship, if the building was full at second worship, people would be excited about that because they're saying, boy, the building is full, and that's only one of the worship periods. See, that's what's exciting. When someone comes forward on the invitation, and, and, and that person says, I have decided to make Jesus Christ number one in my life, to give myself totally to that, to the Lord. I've never heard anybody say, well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Have you ever heard somebody goes, man, that's dumb. She's giving her life to the Lord. No, people go, amen, that's great. And I dare say that people are saying in their hearts, I should have gone forward too. I should have done that too. Why did I hesitate? Why didn't I go forward this morning? That's what people are doing. That's what excites people. To see other people taking a step forward in their faith and growing in Christ, that's what's exciting. And also, faithful attendance increases giving. The more people come regularly, the more they're involved, the more they're involved, the more they give. The more they give, the more things we can do. The more good things we can do. Regular worship is the first step in producing church growth. So if you want this church to grow, I encourage you to decide now to attend all the services on a regular basis. As simple as that. No magic, no miracles, just be here. Just be here. Be here on a regular basis, and just doing that will contribute to growth. Number four, we have to move quickly, is loving fellowship. If we want the church to grow, we have to practice loving fellowship. You know, people come into the church through personal evangelism. We baptize them into the church. But you know what makes people stay here? Love makes them stay. It's loving fellowship. It's the love that people experience and feel that makes them want to be a part of this congregation. We have many programs in the church. Many, many programs in this church. Good ones. Teaching and all kinds of service programs. 
But I dare say that one of the most important and vital programs in our congregation is the care group program, the care group ministry that we have. The care group ministry, if you're not familiar with it, is that ministry that tries to create an environment where brothers and sisters get together to share social and service activities on various nights. That is so important. It's so important to growth because next to peace of mind with God, the thing that people want the most is love and friendship. You know, you, you talk to people who are outside, who are not members of the church, driving by. You take a survey of this community. And I guarantee you that the thing that people want the most is friendship. Because this is a lonely, lonely world. And it's getting lonelier by the day. Do you know that the largest segment of our population now, do you know what segment that is? Single mothers. Single mothers constitute the largest segment of our population. The, the, the fastest growing segment of our population. Single moms. You know what it's like to be a single mom? Certainly I don't, but I'm imagining. It means you've got to get up, and you've got to take care of your kids, and then you've got to go to work, and then you've got to come home and take care of your kids some more. And you've got no time to go out and to socialize because all you do is work and take care of your kids and work and take care of your kids. I have a feeling that that can be pretty grinding experience after a while. When people come to us, here, I'll tell you something. I don't think that they are overly impressed by the fact, for example, that we don't use an instrument of music in our worship. Now, I think that's the right way to worship without an instrument of music. I'm not making a comment on that. But I'm just saying that people are not overly impressed by that. They think that, oh, how unusual, you don't use any instruments. Well, I kind of like the singing, it's really nice. But you know, that's not the thing that really draws them. What draws them is how much love they perceive that we have for them as people. That's what draws them. Because when they go home, it isn't the singing that they remember necessarily. It's who hugged them, who shook their hand, who took the time to look right into their eyes when they were speaking and really pay attention to their needs. That's what brings people and keeps people close to God and close to the church. The growing church in the year 2000 is the church who is able to say to the world, we have a place for you in our family. And no matter who you are or what you've done, you can be one of us. It doesn't matter what color you are. It doesn't matter how rich you are. It doesn't matter what your past is. You can be one of us. And you can be a, an equal part of our family, whether you're a man or a woman or single or divorced or whatever you are. You can be an equally loved, important member of our family. So when I say if we want the church to grow, we have to have fellowship, not just fellowship, that's just people getting together. No, we have to have loving fellowship. That's people getting together and sharing their love for one another. The most wonderful experience in the care group is not just eating the food. It's the teasing and the fooling around and the fun that we have that says, I love this brother and I love this sister in a pure and a holy way. And when people experience that, they say, I want some of that. 
Because I don't get that at the office. At the office, what I get is work or sexual innuendo or pressure. That's what I get at the office. But in the church of Christ, what I get is love and acceptance and purity and holiness and service. And I want that and I need that. So if the Choctaw Church of Christ wants to grow, you know, we want to fill, there's no magic way. We have to, every person that walks through that door, we have to love them one at a time. (laughs) Just one at a time. And love them and take care of them. All right, number five. Finish up. We want the church to grow. Sacrificial service. Keyword, sacrificial. The early Christians, you know, they were in a crisis. All of a sudden, they had no church, and then, bang, in a day, they had 3,000. Can you imagine if from this week, you know, we're 300 people, we went to 3,000 in one week? How much work? Our elders would be overwhelmed. You know, our deacons wouldn't be able to keep up with all the things that needed to happen. We'd have to make room for everybody. Think about it. Think if we had 3,000 people all of a sudden, where would we put them? What would we do? How would we take care of the widows, the the sick, the teaching of the children? It'd be exciting, wouldn't it? We'd find a way. People who had never served before, people who had never given before, people who had never taught before would be pressed into service. Well, that's what was happening in the first century. They had no safety fund, no cushion in the bank. They had no special policies to protect the old account. They met needs by raising money. The only way they knew how, they just sold their stuff. Guy had two pieces of land or a big piece of land. He chopped it up, sold it, gave the money to the church. People had jewelry. They cashed it in, gave the money to the church. They did what they had to do to get through. Now, I don't think that this is necessarily a pattern for how to establish a budget. But I do think that it's an example of what kind of attitude is required if our service and if our giving is going to affect our growth. Remember what I'm trying to get across here this morning. I'm saying, what do we have to do to grow? Not just serve. We have to serve in a sacrificial way. Serving doesn't get it done. It's sacrificial serving that creates growth. The principle is found in John chapter 12. Jesus says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains by itself alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. John chapter 12, verse 24. Now in this verse, Jesus explains a universal principle. And here it is. In order for something to grow, something's got to die. You want something to grow? Something else has got to die. Well, the same principle can be applied to church growth in the area of service. Service is not service unless comfort and convenience dies. See what I'm saying? If it doesn't cost you anything, if it doesn't cost you any effort, if it's not, if it's not inconvenient, there's no service involved. Giving is not giving unless satisfaction dies. Then it starts to be giving. In other words, service means inconvenience and giving requires sacrifice if it's to truly be an act of service or giving. For the church to grow, there needs to be real service and real giving going on. You see what I'm saying? We serve, but do we serve to a point where it becomes inconvenient? We give. We give, all right. But does it hurt yet? Has it, has the pain, have we gotten to a pain threshold yet? And I make a little 
parenthetical statement here, not in my notes. You know, a couple of months back, we surveyed the congregation and we said to you, when I say we, meaning ministers, elders, you know, we said to you, what is it that you want? You know, what direction should we go? Give us an idea, because the elders are trying to formulate a plan. And the congregation said, well, we want to grow. That's what we said. And we want to accommodate that growth. We, we're tired of being in tiny classrooms. We, you know, we're jammed up or crammed. You know, we'd like a fellowship hall. We'd like bigger classrooms. We'd like to, you know, be able to reach out into the community. We'd like to be four or five hundred member congregation to be able to do things. To be able to meet the year 2000 ready for the growth of people moving into this area. And I said to you, you, you know, that's what you said. And I said to you back, if you remember this, the only way that we're going to know if you really mean it is watch that board. Because if we cannot pay for the light and the heat and the electricity and just the normal expenses of maintaining what we're doing here now, then there's no way that we're going to undertake this grandiose scheme to plan for the future. In other words, you've got to be able to pay what you've got before you add to what you've got. Well, I want to tell you, in the last quarter, in the last 13 weeks, we've made budget three out of the 13 times. So what we're saying is we want to grow. But what we're doing is saying, no, what we really want is just to maintain the status quo. Okay? That, that's, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? But I think it's time we kind of realize that. Service is not service un unless it's inconvenient. And giving isn't giving unless it's sacrificial. It's got to cost us something. And you know what we've learned in the last quarter? If we want to grow, we are going to have to go beyond what we've ever done in the past. Forget the past. Forget what you've ever done in the past. If you want to grow, you're going to have to go past the level that you've ever done in the past. I don't care how long you've been in this church. I know I've only been here two years. If you've been here 20 years, if you want to get to the next step, you're going to have to do more than you've ever done in the past. And that's the lesson that we've learned in the last 13 weeks. Church growth is painful, and the pain is felt in your schedule, and it's felt in your pocketbook. No pain, no gain. No budget, no building. To all those who are anxious to build, remember, no budget, no building. So let's summarize these thoughts and the lesson will be yours. You know, there are books that come out every year claiming that they found the secret to church growth. Well, I'll tell you, there is no secret to church growth. This is the book. This is the only book that will provide the information to make this or any other church grow. If we want Choctaw to grow, then we have to remember it will require biblical preaching and teaching. It will require evangelism done by every single member. Not me, ju not just me, not just Lewis or the other elders. It'll require evangelism. You know, who are you inviting? Who are you sharing with? It will require worship attended on a regular basis by everyone. Not just the faithful core, but it means the ones who only come Sunday morning will have to start coming Sunday night and Wednesday night too. It will require fellowship that is warm and loving. And you know what? I think we got that one down pretty good. That warm and loving fellowship, I think we're doing pretty good in that area. The only drawback is I wish everyone here would be involved in a care group so that they could experience that warm and loving fellowship that takes place. 
And finally, service that costs you something. These things are not miracles. They require effort and perseverance, but I'll tell you one thing, they do work. If we do these five things, I guarantee you, this church will grow, and it will grow beyond our expectations. Churches who have leaders who are helping the church put these principles into practice are already experiencing a steady growth in numbers as well as in maturity. And so I encourage each person this morning, if you are typing this type of, I don't mean typing this way, but if you are putting it in a box, what kind of sermon is this? This is an encouragement sermon, an exhortation sermon. And I encourage you and exhort you to commit yourself to growth of this church by putting these principles into practice. This morning, if you need the prayers of the church in order to put these into practice, if it's time for you to become a Christian or place your membership with us, or perhaps you need to be restored, you know, to start fresh, or you need the prayers of the church because you're struggling with health problems or personal problems, whatever it is, we're ready to minister to you. Don't, don't be embarrassed and don't be shy. Don't think someone will think badly of you because you come for the prayers of the church. Remember, you're not coming for the prayers of the church to impress the brethren. You're coming for the prayers of the brethren and you're coming to God. So if you have a need, we encourage you to come forward now as we stand and as we sing. And 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 and as we sing. And, and as we